Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. We are in a series called Man vs. Wild and looking at particularly the, the challenges that men face. Now, these aren't all exclusively male, but, um, but many of them are. And we're going to be looking at a special one this morning. Um, maybe the greatest, the greatest challenge of every man. Um, in fact, I would be willing to say every male in this room struggles with this one. It is the ability to admit you are wrong. It's not what you thought it was going to be, is it? We have this thing, us, us, man, we just got to, you know, there is no problem we cannot fix. You know, we are never lost. Why would we stop and ask for directions? We know where we're going. We know what we're doing. It's been said that the three hardest words for a man are, I was wrong. And uh, you might think that that's just a big macho thing, but actually, I want to read to you an article um, by a gal named Allison Armstrong in Men's Sight magazine online. She wrote this. She said, almost every woman has a story about a man who drove around for, all, for hours looking for some place and refused her entreaties to stop and ask. To women, this seems like the ultimate display of male arrogance and stubbornness. But what if it isn't? It's important to understand that a man is never lost. To him, that implies a helplessness that he will never willingly experience. He simply hasn't gotten there yet. And has complete faith in his ability to do so. See, a man's will and unwillingness to stop and ask for directions is consistent with his survival instincts. And actually, not stubborn at all. First, the act of stopping a car and rolling down the window makes him and you more vulnerable than he is willing to be just to get someplace faster. Second, from a man's point of view, the moment he asks a gas station attendant or someone on the street for directions, he has put his life and yours in the hands of a stranger. Men wisely only put their lives in the hands of people who have proven themselves trustworthy. The way he sees it, you are both better off searching for your destination yourselves than being at the mercy of someone he doesn't know and trust. Why has he never told you this? Well, according to our research, this is because to him, it's obvious. Every man already knows this, and something that already everybody knows requires no explanation. It is a mystery to him why you seem to have forgotten this basic rule of survival. That's it. That's the reason. The truth is we all make mistakes. We all get lost. We all have failures. Men, women, doesn't matter. Some of our mistakes are little. Some of them are big. Some of them are huge. Life impacting. And even with the best of intentions, we never really get it always right. Through this series, we've been looking at a uh, different men in Scripture, and they, they all seem larger than life. you got Benaiah who, who took on the circumstances facing him and, and killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Macho man. Uh, we looked at Shema, who stood up to a whole army, refused to back down. You know, strong man. John the Baptist, who refused to give in to the culture of his day and stood against the culture and stood for God. Powerful man. And I think many of us see these guys as so larger than life, so intimidating, we think, I could never be like that. That's not me. And in fact, truth be told, I've already blown it. I've already made too many mistakes. I'll never be able to be the father or the husband or the man or the person that I really should be. And if that's how you feel this morning, I want you to hear these words. If you don't hear anything else, it is never too late. 
It is never too late. Because it really doesn't matter how you started. What matters is how you finish. You can overcome your past and finish well. But there's one thing you got to be able to do. You need to be able to effectively deal with this thing called guilt. Guilt is the one obstacle that can keep us chained up. It is the one obstacle that can keep us from moving forward. It is the one obstacle that will keep us chained to where we are and keep us from fulfilling our future. And, and we don't like to talk a lot about it, but guilt is a reality. And this morning, I want to tell you, we need to know how to handle guilt because it is a tremendous roadblock. And, and I've seen it over and over and again as a pastor, seeing people who never adequately dealt with the guilt of their past and end up repeating the same mistakes over and over again because they never learned. They never got over it. They carry it with them from one thing to the next. And the guilt that they carry from college, they carry into their family. And, and the guilt from a job, uh, um, a, tr- a job trip, they bring back home to their household. And the guilt that they have as a parent, they carry into the It affects everything you do. The guilt that you don't resolve, the guilt that you never adequately deal with, you carry with you wherever you go. And it is the one thing that will keep you from finishing well. But you can finish well. And you can learn this process of overcoming guilt. Today we're going to look at a guy... I think most of us can relate to. You may not be able to relate to a guy who wrestled the lion in a pit on a snowy day. But everyone here can relate to a guy named Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. He is probably, of all the disciples, the most obvious in his strengths as well as his weaknesses, in his great successes and his dismal failures. He is one of those guys that every one of us can relate to. And his story, particularly as you get to the end of John's Gospel, gives us a real insight on this idea of of overcoming our guilt, overcoming our past, and learning to move forward. And let me set the story up. We're looking at John chapter 21, and and here's the story. Um, If if you're not familiar with it, if you don't have this background, um, Jesus spent three years with essentially a a large group, but primarily a group of 12 disciples. And he taught them, he poured his life into them, he showed them uh, the things about the kingdom of God, and, and it came up to the last year of his life. And um, in the last week of his life, he spent some time with the disciples. He knew what was coming. And he talked to them about this idea that he was going to Jerusalem, and he was going to be arrested, he was going to be crucified, he was going to be put to death. And he told them that up front. And he actually turned to Peter on one occasion. He said, Peter, you are going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows that morning. And Peter said, no, 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 not me, Lord. Well, Jesus got arrested, and he went to trial, and Peter did deny him. And Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And in chapter 20, he meets again with his disciples. And then in chapter 21, there's one more time. It's the last time he meets with his followers. And it happened this way. John 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of the disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. They said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But his disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because it was, there was a large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. 
And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he had taken it off. He jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the large net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, only about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning, of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you've just caught. And they sat down and they had breakfast. And then skip on down to verse 15. When they'd finished eating... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. It's a real interesting encounter. And this conversation that Jesus has with Peter is essential to understanding how you deal with guilt. And it doesn't matter whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus Christ or you're here this morning and you're just beginning those steps of seeking God. The process is the same. And the way that you overcome your mistakes and your failures and finish well is to go through the process of confession. And it goes like this. The very first thing we need to do is we need to face up to the truth about our failure. We just need to face up to it. Because all sin, all failure, all of our mistakes involves some form of denial somewhere along the way. We excuse it. We rationalize it. We cover it up. Um, we blame other people. We have all kinds of ways that we deal with it. But, um, you, politicians. You ever notice that? Politicians never say, I made a mistake. Notice that? This, this whole thing now with the bailout and all the money and who said what and when did they know and all that bunch of... You know, nobody says, I made the mistake... Everybody says, mistakes were made. The implication, not me, just mistakes were made. Social psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is, it is the tension that develops between my actual behavior and, and the belief in my own moral goodness. See, we believe that we are basically morally good people, but our behavior doesn't always demonstrate that. And because our behavior doesn't reflect what we want to believe about ourselves, it causes this tension. This tension is called cognitive dissonance. And the way that we deal with it typically is we create fictions to absolve us of our responsibilities and guilt. We make up reasons why it happened that way. I was a victim of my circumstances. It's not what I intended to do. I'm basically a good person. I just, you know, they did it. <laughs> It's the way that we try to deal with our own guilt. I, I've said it before. One of my favorite programs is Judge Judy. I, I know. But it, it is such a character study in humanity. You, you watch this program, and it's amazing the kind of things that people... their defenses for the things that they do. And what I really like most about the... It, after, the after the judgment has been handed down and Judge Judy says, you know, pay the person, you know, $5,000 or whatever it is, they always interview the people afterwards. And, and it doesn't matter how badly they lost or how much of a fool they looked like on the program, everybody believes the judge made the wrong decision. If they were the one found guilty, she just made, I disagree with her decision. 
I, this last week we were watching one. A 16-year-old girl was given a tattoo at this tattoo parlor. And the mom didn't like it. So she was suing the tattoo parlor owner for doing this tattoo on a minor, her daughter, and she wanted her, him to pay for the removal of the tattoo. And his, his, his whole excuse was, well, she knew what she was doing. She came in here asking for the tattoo. She pretended like she was 18. How were we supposed to know? You card them. You ask for identification. And he lost big time. And afterwards, he said, I still think the judge made the wrong decision. She knew what she was doing. We have this ability to justify ourselves. We avoid the unpleasantness of our weaknesses and our mistakes and our failures. And another way that we do it is we try to emphasize our strengths. If we've got a weakness, we try to push that aside and give ourselves to our strengths. That's one of the ways, by the way, that Peter does this. Peter has failed, okay? Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, no, I won't. No, I won't. I promise. I, I never will do that. I would never do that. And he does it. And now he is feeling like a failure. I am washed up. I am failed as a disciple. I, I, I cannot no longer call myself a, a follower of Jesus. And because I'm a failure as a disciple, his decision is, I'll go to where I'm successful. Simon Peter with Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, sons of Zebedee, two other disciples, they're all there together. Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. I may be washed up as a disciple, but I know I can fish. That's what I used to do. I was good at it. I was successful at it. I'm going to go to where my strengths are. That is classic. That is classic men. <laughs> In fact, one of the biggest... One of the biggest reasons for workaholics is they feel like failures at home, and so they pour themselves into a successful career because that's where they get the attaboys. That's where they get the encouragement. That's where they get the bonuses. And so that's where they feel their successes, and they do so at the expense of their families, of their marriages. It is classic. It's one of the ways that we deal with our weaknesses. Rather than face our weaknesses and admit them, we just give ourselves to where we get our strength, where we get our successes. And that's what Peter's doing. The thing is, Jesus doesn't give up on him. They go out, they fish all night long. Jesus shows up on the seashore. He meets Peter on his own turf. He shows up on the seashore. And he calls out to them. Got any fish? No. Thank you very much for reminding us, you know. <laughs> oh, well, just put your net on the other side of the boat. Now, there's not more than like eight feet difference between one side of the boat and the other. But he says, put your net on the other side of the boat. You're not as successful a fisherman as you think you are. Put your net on the other side of the boat. And the hole was so heavy, they couldn't get the net into the boat. And what Jesus is doing, this is not the first time he had done this. What he is doing, he is recreating, recreating what happened recorded in Luke 9. When Jesus first called Peter to be a follower. It's the exact same thing. They had caught, fished all night. They had caught nothing. He told them how to fish. They brought in a record catch. And after that, he said, you think you know how to fish for fish? Follow me. I'll teach you to fish for men. And what Jesus is doing here is he's recreating that original time of calling for Peter. He's, he's making him come to grips with his, his running away. He is recreating that original call. And he provides breakfast for them. And you've got to believe sitting around that breakfast campfire, it's a real awkward feeling. Because Peter knows what he's done. He's feeling the guilt and the weight of being a failure. And they're sitting around breakfast, and I'm, and I'm sure he's wondering, when are we going to talk about this? You know, can we just push this aside and pretend it never happened? 
You know, it's kind of like the you know, 600-pound gorilla sitting on the beach right next to him that nobody wants to acknowledge. And he's probably getting all through the meal, and, and the meal all goes fine. And he thinks, okay, whew, dodge that one. And after the meal, John 21, 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And you know what I said? Do you love me more than these? What he is doing is hearkening back to Peter's own words. Because when Jesus had told Peter, you're going to deny me, Peter said this, Luke, Mark 14, 29. Peter said, all the others may turn away, but I will not. Everybody else may forsake you, Lord, but not me. They might not love you as much as I do. I really love you. You can count on me. And what Jesus is saying is, do you really? Do you really love me more than these? He's bringing him back to the moment. Because what he wants Peter to do is, Peter needs to man up. Peter needs to admit, I made a mistake. Real men don't run. See, this is the way that we experience guilt. We experience guilt like a weight on our hearts. It's this thing that just weighs us down. And we can't always identify it. And, and we, we, you know, we, we've harmed somebody or we, we talked behind somebody's back or we cheated somebody or we've done something and we think nothing of it until we see that person again. And we see them again and we go, oh, this sinking feeling. I wonder if they found out. I wonder, you know, things are never, it, it breaks the relationship. And it feels like a weight on our heart. And what Jesus is doing is he is making him face up to his failure. Now, that seems really, really cruel, but here's the deal. Confession is the only way to break the chains of guilt. We would like to push it off into the corner and pretend it never happened. We'd like to push it out of our minds and think it, it, it wasn't really that bad. But the only way you're going to deal with that weight of guilt in your life is you've got to face up to it. That is the very, very first step. Face up to the truth about my failures. But it's not just an intellectual exercise. There is also a heart issue here. That's that weight thing. And so there's a second step to this. Because not only do we need to own up to it, what we really need to do is enter into the pain that we've caused. Because the truth is our mistakes, our failures, impact somebody else. Our mistakes and our failures hurt other people. And the only way to remedy it, the only way to remedy it is to go and face them. That's how you enter into the pain that you've caused. You face up to the person that you have hurt. To enter into the pain is to face up to them. And if you don't, if you don't, you will never fully experience the freedom of forgiveness. We like to talk and we like to emphasize a lot this idea of bringing your sins to God. Let Him forgive you. And that is absolutely true. We bring to Him our guilt. We bring to Him our shame. We bring to Him our sin, our failures, our mistakes, whatever you want to call them. We bring them to Him and He has promised He will forgive. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's what He did. He was paying the price for our sin. He does forgive. The part that we don't like to talk about is going and talking to somebody else about it. Going to the person we have harmed and facing up to it with them. Facing the pain we have caused. Anybody in recovery, anybody working through 12 steps will tell you, this is an essential part of the 12-step process. It's right in the middle. We bring our guilt and our, and, our, and our weakness to God and we receive His forgiveness. The next thing we do is we do a ruthless inventory on the people that we have harmed. And then the next step is we go and make amends. 
with the caveat, unless it would injure or harm them or another. That is a biblical principle. You know where they got that? It's right out of the Bible. Jesus said, if you're at the altar offering your gift and you realize someone has something against you, you leave your gift right there at the altar and you go and get reconciled to them. You're taking care of the God part. you got to take care of the person part. James tells us, confess your sins to who? To one another. It's the part we don't like to talk about. We love the forgiveness of God, but we don't want to really face the pain that we have caused somebody. But every time you hurt somebody, every time you talk behind somebody's back, every time you cheat somebody, every time you, whatever you do, you do harm to that person in some way, shape, or form. And the deeper the harm, the deeper the hurt. And it's uncomfortable, and it, it doesn't feel good at all. It's embarrassing. But if you have harmed somebody, you need to go back to them. It's the second part of this process. That's why Jesus does this face-to-face with Peter. Jesus asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He asked him once. He asked him twice. He asked him a third time, do you love me? And it says Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Why was he hurt? Because he understood now what he had done. He entered into the pain that he had caused. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's embarrassing. It hurts like heck. (laughs) But it's an essential part of this process. Back in the 1950s when trying to break the sound barrier. And the only way you could break the sound barrier with the technology of the time was they had to put the jet into a steep dive and actually use gravity as well as jet propulsion to break through that sound barrier. And, and numerous times they would break through the sound barrier but absolutely lose control because they were trying to rein it back after breaking the sound barrier. And pilot after pilot crashed and killed themselves. Test pilots were killed trying to break the sound barrier. And what they discovered was the first person to break the sound barrier, what they discovered was the way to get through the barrier is to accelerate through it. Once you break the barrier, you push all the way through. And it rattles and it shakes, but the minute you accelerate through, smooth sailing, smooth flying. And that's kind of the way it is with this this pain of making amends. It hurts. It's hard. It's difficult. Everything seems to be shaking. But once you accelerate through that, if you break through that pain, you begin to discover the freedom and the lightness of that load. See, the problem is the way that guilt has been used traditionally in the church. I think it gives us a misunderstanding of guilt. I think traditionally, and maybe this was your experience growing up, and if it was, just let me say as a pastor, I apologize. But churches have so often used guilt to manipulate people. If we keep them feeling guilty, they'll have to keep coming back. If we make them feel guilty, they'll put more money in the plate, you know? If we just notch up the guilt a little bit, they'll come and, 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 and make confession. It's, it's the way that the church has operated. And I want you to know, that is not how Jesus operated. Jesus did not use guilt to manipulate people. He confronted them with their real guilt, but he did not rub them in it. He brought them to the point of guilt so they could be released from it. And when you read the life and ministry of Jesus, that's what he is always doing. When guilty people come to him, he comes to lighten the load. 
to bring forgiveness. Notice here with Peter, what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say to Peter, now don't you feel bad? He doesn't say to Peter, are you really, really sorry now? Will you try harder next time? What he says to Peter is, do you love me? Do you love me? See, there's a difference between godly sorrow and beating myself up or manipulating others with guilt. 2 Corinthians says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. When Peter first denied, it said he went out and wept bitterly. That's the self-flagellation. That's the beating myself up. That's the weight of guilt. He wept bitterly. What Jesus is doing here is something very, very different. What Jesus is doing is giving him a chance to affirm his love. And he does it three times. And Peter knows what he's getting at. Because there was three times that he denied him. So three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And three times Peter gets the chance to affirm, Lord, you know I love you. He is bringing him back fully. There is something about the number three. If you read through scripture, it's a very, very important number. The number three comes up very, very often in scripture. And it usually is there for a reason. Um, When God says says something three times, he's really making a point. Third day, the third day in Jewish history, throughout Scripture, the third day is an important day. The third day is the day of release. The third day is the day of rescue. The third day is the day of freedom. Jonah was in the belly of the whale. The great fish wasn't a whale. The great fish, three days. Jesus was in the tomb, three days. The third day, he resurrected. Three, third day. That's about freedom. That's about release. That's about rescue. And that's what God, Jesus is doing with Peter here. Three times you denied me. Three times I'm going to ask you. Three times you get to affirm. Yes, Lord, I love you. And he is releasing him from the guilt that he's carrying. I face up to what I've done. That deals with the past, and I receive forgiveness. Then I enter into the pain that I've caused. That deals with the present and brings restoration. But there's one more step in the process. And this is important. It is to take the steps toward a new future. The Bible calls it repentance. The word literally means to have a change in my way of thinking, to have a shift in my, in my perspective. It means I was going this way, doing everything my way, by my standards, by my strength, and I make it to a point where I realize I can't do it, and I make a shift and turn the direction of my life by changing the way that I think. By changing the way that I approach life, I repent. I turn and go a different direction. It is taking the steps toward a new future. And what happens is Peter finally gets it because it was never about performance. It was always about a relationship. He finally says to Jesus, Lord, you know You know all things. You know that I love you. Lord, you know. He begins to understand that it's not going to be my strength that's going to live this new life. It's going to be my relationship with Jesus. See, up till now, it has always been about 
Peter's strength. And that's why he has this roller coaster, ups and downs, successes and failures. He, 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 he meets, Jesus is talking with his disciples. And he's sitting around and he says, who do people say that I am? And everybody tells all the things. That, he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. The spirit, God revealed that to you. And Peter goes, whoa, God revealed to me. And then he turns around and Jesus begins to tell him about the death that's going to happen. And Peter says, no, no, Lord, that'll never far be it for that ever happening to you. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Hero to zero in one conversation. <laughs> and that's what happens when you're doing it in your own strength. There's sometimes you're great success and there's times you just fall flat on your face. And that's Peter's life. His whole three years of following Jesus is ups and downs and ups and downs. He walks on water and he sinks in the water. He makes great proclamations, and then he says the wrong thing. Because it's never about performance. And up till now, that's what Peter has been relying on. And that's why he is so devastated by his failure. He's angry at himself. I let myself down. He is stuck. He has been stuck on trying to do this in his own strength. The good thing about being stuck... It's a prerequisite to getting unstuck. Mike Iaconelli writes about this in his book, Messy Spirituality. He says, getting stuck can be the best thing that could happen because it forces us to stop. When we're stuck, we are much more likely to pay attention to our hunger for God. Sometimes being stuck is the low point at which we say, okay, I give up. We cannot grow without first giving up and letting go. See, here's the deal with guilt. Guilt is a problem to be remedied. It is not a state of existence. Guilt is something to show us what needs to change. It is not something that we are meant to carry the rest of our lives. It is a problem to, remedy, to be remedied, not, not a state of being. Now Peter's ready to fulfill the calling Jesus put on his life. Now you're ready. Now because you've failed in your own strength and I've restored you, now he says to him, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. He's saying, Peter, now that you know failure and now you know grace, now you know restoration, so now you can deal with the young ones of the flock, the lambs, the little ones. The new believers whose lives are up and down like a roller coaster yours was on. He says, now you know. Now you can help them. Now you can, now you can take care of those who have fallen and failed and are, and are wounded. You can care for those people in the church now. Because you know the grace of God. You know the power of restoration. Now, now you can relate to those old time believers. Because now you understand grace. The power of love is the power of grace. And the weight of guilt really becomes an act of grace because it brings us to the point where we say, I give up. Now, Peter, now you can forgive because you understand forgiveness. Now you can care for because now you know care. Now you can serve others because now you found what it means to be served. Now you're ready for the calling I had on your life. 
Now you're ready to live that new future I planned for you. Romans 6, 4 puts it this way. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. New lives. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 